All right, 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10. It's a short chapter, but you really don't want to start chapter 11 and then stop because, well, if you've read ahead, you know. Chapter 10. The whole theme of the books of Samuel, remember it's one book originally, was that Uh, looking at the heart, lessons from the heart. And when we get to 2 Samuel, though, we're focusing mostly on David's heart, and in particular, his heart after God. And and, and we're learning, you know, all these things about David that made him a man after God's heart. We will learn other things that, you know, obviously will be shortcomings, and yet even through those things, we will still learn what made David a man after God's heart. At this point in time, when we get to chapter 10, David has expanded Israel's borders farther uh, than they've ever been. Multiple nations are now vassal states to Israel. Israel's at peace with all of its neighbors for the first time in its history since Joshua brought them into the land. But as you can imagine, all of the surrounding nations aren't exactly happy about this status quo. And so when a coordinated rebellion occurs, David sends Joab to deal with it. And this uh, rough and tough general that we, we don't usually tend to think of as the spiritual guy finds himself surrounded. And this normally not so spiritual man gives a wonderful speech to his troops that reveals an important truth that we can all live by, and it's that we're to do our best and then commit the rest to the Lord. So chapter 10, we begin in verse 1. And it came to pass after this that the king of the children of Ammon died, and Hanun his son reigned in his stead. And then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hand of his servants for his father, and David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. So here we see David in this moment in time sends uh, some of his officials to the nation of Ammon uh, to, to, for this situation that comes up. It says it came to pass after this, the things that have occurred in the previous chapters, that the king of Ammon died. Um, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 12, um, it doesn't tell us how, but Ammon, it tells us that Ammon had become a vassal country, a vassal state of Israel. So they were paying tribute. They had pledged fealty, loyalty to David. <clears throat> and so the king of Ammon dies, Hanun his son is reigning in his place, and David's reaction to this event is, I'm going to show kindness unto Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. That word kindness is that word hesed, loyal love, unfailing devotion. I mean, this is a, it's like the Hebrew equivalent of the New Testament agape. Um, Nahash, we know this guy before in Scripture. He was the king of Ammon who invaded Israel right after Saul became king. When Saul became king, people in Israel didn't rally behind him. A lot of people didn't like the pick the Lord, the Lord picked. Um, and, and really, we had even a bunch of people who refused to follow King Saul. But there were some loyal men who, who said, no, we're going we're gonna to be behind you, Saul. And, and, uh, and so the nation was still kind of fractured. Well, the king of Ammon took opportunity, this guy Nahash, and he invaded the nation of Israel. And so Saul rallied the troops, Israel behind him, and he, he routed the Ammonites, and that's when all the kingdom finally got behind Saul. We don't have a record of anywhere of how this guy treated David well. He says, I will show kindness as his father showed kindness to me. We don't have any record of how he showed kindness to David. In fact, he's technically, the only record we have is he's the enemy of Israel. 
Uh, so what happened? I, I don't know. It is, it's probably not a stretch to assume that Nahash probably helped David somehow when he was on the run from Saul, kind of like the idea, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, you know? Uh, it, probably it had something to do with that, but it could also be si- just as simple as the fact that when David became king that uh, Nahash sent an emissary to congratulate him. I don't know. It could have been something very simple, and David either way sees this as a kindness, and he wants to reciprocate this this goodwill. And so he sent to comfort him, to express sympathy to the son who's now going to be king um, by the hand of his servants for his father. So he sends these, uh, the servants here doesn't mean like slaves, it means like royal officials. These are uh, important emissaries from Israel, a great honor that David would send these important men to share, you know, express their sympathy at this guy's loss of his father. However, in verse 3, we're going to see that some of the leadership in Ammon does not see it that way. Verse 3, and the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanun their lord, do you think that David does honor your father, that he has sent comforters unto you? Has not David rather sent his servants unto you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? That's, a, that's not exactly believing the best about somebody here. Um, these princes, we don't know how the uh, nation of the Ammonites structured their leadership. It, it means they are either high-ranking nobles or chieftains, some kind of leaders. I think probably the closest you would, um, equivalent you could find in our nation is, this would be like the president's cabinet, you know. These are high-ranking officials, not the king, but they are powerful individuals. And they've likely been in power much longer than this guy has been. And so, uh, when the phrase, do you think that David does honor your father? It means, does David, literally in Hebrew, it means, does David's claim have weight in your eyes? Uh, they, they, you know, he's coming here claiming to express sympathy, and, and you're actually believing him? Uh, they're almost chiding him for, for his naivete. You know, uh, he says here, has not David rather sent his servants unto uh, thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Um, the word there for search actually implies that, that the king gave them freedom to go about wherever they wanted to in the city. Uh, and so the idea is, don't, don't you realize they're here to, to, you know, to, to gather information about the defenses of the city and to spy out you know, the situation so that David can invade now that your father, who was a strong leader, is dead and, and, and just wipe us all out? <laughs> the tone of this is, is a rebuke. You know? You're, you, this is really naive of you. Uh, and, and so, this, I, we don't know how old this, this guy is. He could be 50, he could be 20, I don't know how old he is. Uh, but this rebuke provokes an extreme response from this new king. Look at verse 4. Wherefore, Hanun took David's servants, and he shaved off the one half of their beards, and he cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. That's fighting actions. They, he took them, which means he took away their freedom. The word it means to arrest. So he, he took away the, the freedom they had to move about the city, put them in some type of ward where they couldn't move about. And then he, I, I don't imagine they agreed to this, this prospect, uh, this plan. They, they forcibly shaved just, just one side of their face. So, you know, you've got your, you know, your beard over here, and then you've got a clean-shaven face over here. You know, you kind of look like the guy who's got two faces, you know? And, and, uh, and so they did that to him. And in Oriental nations, a man's beard was considered his greatest ornament, okay? Like back then, they might wear jewelry, earrings, or things like that. But his beard, that was the greatest ornament he had. And I, I realize some of you still believe that today. <laughs> However, it was also a sign of a man's freedom, 
because it was the one way that you could express yourself however you wanted to, you know? If you wanted to braid it, you wanted to do certain things, you wanted to grow it this way, that way, whatever. I mean, this was, this was your freedom to do that. And so, when someone else is shaving you, that's, by the way, the, the great insult the Philistines did when, when um, um, uh, Delilah cut Samson's hair, you know? The idea was, you know, bondage, you know, that taking away the freedom that was the idea behind this activity. Shaving one side of one's beard would be considered a massive insult. And yet, this King Hanun doesn't stop there. He, he, it's comical we read it now, but I imagine if you'd had it happen to you and you, you know, you're told to hit the road like that, you probably wouldn't have been very excited. Probably wouldn't have been chuckling either. He cut off their garments in the middle. The garments here is the long outer robe that reached down to the feet. So, in the middle half would be right around here, you know, and it tells us, just in case our imaginations didn't work very well, even to their butts. And so, the idea here is that, you know, and you have to understand something. Israel was a little bit different than, than our culture. The only people who wore undergarments back then were the priests. That's it. That's why there was, I know it sounds so, sometimes you read, like I read, I read something in Deuteronomy the other day, and I'm like, that's a weird law. There are a couple weird ones in Deuteronomy, but you have to understand they do life a little different than we do. And one of the laws was, if you see a guy walking up above you, you're not supposed to go look, because you're going to uncover his nakedness, because there were no boxers or briefs under there. So if you cut off a guy's robe, the outer garment right here, guess what? Hi, everybody. So, they're, you know, naked from the, the waist down. Um, everything's exposed. And uh, a great dishonor. And then they sent them away, making them the mockery of anywhere they travel until they can get some clothes. And, and while they might have been able to secure new clothes soon, you can't just regrow a beard or put a new beard on. That takes time. And so, wherever these guys are traveling for the next few weeks, you know, however long it takes to grow the thing out and start to take care of it again, these guys, everybody's going to know, what, what's going on with these guys? Somebody really had their way with them, you know? It's like, it's like walking home and your pants are all, you know, ripped up and you got a bloody nose and a black eye because somebody just took you into the corner and pounded you, you know, for fun. That's kind of the idea here. There's a great humiliation. And when you consider that these are royal officials that were sent by the nation of Israel, that's a great dishonor. Even in our culture, you know, in the world today, we have the idea of, of diplomatic, you know, kindness. We treat them, you know, immunity and things like that. We give them great liberties because we treat them as guests of honor. So, to do this to someone like this was a big no-no. And so, the reaction, as you can imagine, is pretty heavy. When they told it unto David, in other words, uh, we're going to find out a second, when they get to Jericho, they send someone to tell David what happened because that's where they are. When they told it unto David, he sent to meet them. He immediately, David, understanding how disgraced they would be at this mistreatment, he sends somebody to greet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards be grown, and then you can come back. Again, they could get new clothes, but this whole look, they said, he said stay there. I don't want… The idea is he didn't want them to suffer the indignity of everyone in the royal court, everyone in Israel seeing them like this. I mean, that would provoke a, a pretty heavy response from the nation. These guys have been faithful civil servants, and they deserve better than to be thought of this way. Now, 
As you read through this chapter, something tells me that those who criticized this new king, Hanun, they didn't expect him to react to such an extreme because what he does is virtually an act of war. They were vassals because they couldn't take Israel in a fight. That's why they sweared fealty to David. So that puts them in a very bad spot right now. And so in verse 6, we see the nation begin to scramble. And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, the children of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 footmen, and of King Maacah, 1,000 men, and of Ishtob, 12,000 men. The phrase stank before is a phrase you'll see at times throughout the Old Testament, and it means to become a stench in someone's eyes. Now, I don't know about you, maybe you have really cool eyes, but mine don't smell. So obviously, when we're talking about a stench that reaches to your eyes, it's the idea, like, have you ever been somewhere where, you know, either there's been a, like a waste leak or something like that, and like, you, it's almost difficult to breathe, your eyes start to water, you know? That's the type of situation here that this is describing. When you have a stench like that, you, you can't just ignore it, you know? Either you remove yourself or you remove the cause of the stench, right? And so David opts for removing the cause of the stench, and he mobilizes for war. And so the Ammonites know they cannot take David on alone, and so they need allies if they're going to have a chance. And so it says that they sent and hired a total of 33,000 troops from these four other kingdoms that are north of Israel. First uh, Chronicles chapter 19, verse 6 tells us that it cost them half a million pounds of silver. In modern money, that's over $100 million. They broke the bank because they figured we're, we're dead, you know, if we don't get help. Now, these four nations that supply troops for the Ammonites, they're also all vassals to David. So, in essence, this kind of turns into a, like a kind of a domino effect of a pretty big rebellion against David. Interestingly enough, even Maacah joins in, and he's, he's the father to one of David's wives. One of De- Absalom's mom is this guy's daughter. So, I mean, for him to go to war over something or to send troops to help somebody go to war against David, he's putting his daughter's life at risk. So, I mean, these guys have clearly been itching, you know, to, you know to, for a fight to come out from underneath David's, you know, rule. David learns that this is bigger than just Ammon. Well, he brings out the big guns, verse 7. And when David heard of it, it says he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. Joab, you know, David's a fierce warrior. The Bible talks about him. And in fact, we're going to keep reading of things he does, his accomplishments in battle, all throughout 2 Samuel. There will come a point in time when he almost dies fighting in a war, and that's when Joab tells him, you're getting too old for this, kid. You know, and, and, but Joab, he's the fiercest warrior besides David that Israel has. And so David sends Joab, and then it mentions all the hosts, and, and technically there should be a comma there, the mighty men of Israel. So he sends the entire army, and, and the idea of the entire army here is not every man who can hold a weapon, but it's anyone who's a trained soldier. Now, this is in contrast, of course, that to the specific mighty men that David had. Like when you first read this, you think, ooh, he's bringing out, you know, you know all these guys that are going to be named later in 2 Samuel that are all the mighty men of David, and it talks about all their feats. So this guy slew a snow leopard, you know, whatever, and, you know, all these various things. 
that's not what this is saying here. The word mighty men, the way it's written here, it just refers to every trained soldier of Israel. This is, David's going all in with this. He's not holding back. And so verse 8, here's how it goes. It says, and the children of Ammon, they came out and they put the battle in array at the entering in of the gate. Uh, put the battle in array means they arranged their, their battle lines for their soldiers, the Ammonites. They put them all in the entrance to the gate of their capital city of Rabbah. Now, <clears throat> the reason they do this is because they know what's going to happen if David captures the city. We already read about in chapter 8 that David, when Moab rebelled, what did he do? He killed two, executed two-thirds of their soldiers. So these guys are thinking, if, 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 if we lose, two-thirds of our male population's wiped out. And so they say, we're going to defend the, the city. We're going to bottleneck the, the armies of David here. But then I notice it says this, and the Syrians, all these mercenaries that they hired from Zobah and Rehob and Ishtab and Maacah, they were by themselves, so a separate army in the field. Uh, the word here actually refers to a location about four miles southwest of the city of Rabbah. So the plan here for the Ammonites is, is really simple. Draw in David's troops, bog them down in the narrow confines of the gatehouse of the city, and then smash them from behind with the, the hired mercenaries. Now, of course, what if Joab doesn't take the bait? Well, then if Joab doesn't take the bait, the Syrians press them from the rear, and then they smash them against the city. That's the idea here. We're going to kit Israel's forces from two sides, and either way, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna end up, you know, be like the hammer and the anvil is the very common phrase you hear when it, it refers to this type of battle tactic. So how does Joab respond? Verse 9. And when Joab saw that the front of the battle was against him before and behind, the front, in other words, where he's going to be attacked, when he realizes he's going to be attacked from two sides, the front and the back, whatever he plan he chooses, where whoever decides to kid, he's going to have an enemy out at the front and the back. When he realizes this, <clears throat> it says he chose of all the choice men, the best and most tested soldiers of Israel, and he set them in lines, battle lines, to go up against the Syrians. And then the rest of the people, all the other soldiers, it says that he delivered into the hand of Abishai, his brother, that he might put them, the battle lines, and the children of Ammon. So he decides to cut his army, and probably not exactly in half, because you probably have more of not the best soldiers than you do the best soldiers. But he cuts his army in two, which obviously means you're going to now probably be outnumbered on both sides. <clears throat> and so... Verse 11, he says to his men, to Abishai, if the Syrians be too strong for me, then you shall come help me. If the children of, but if the children of Ammon be too strong for you, then I will come and help you. So, so this is the battle plan here, you know. Rather than go on defense, Joab remains committed to being the army on the attack. And by splitting his army into two force, separate forces, Joab is saying, ensuring that he's going to keep all his foes in front of him uh, instead of leaving anybody at his rear. So the idea is we're both going to press forward, even though we are a smaller army separately, but that's how we're going to do it. Now, some would say that's a bit arrogant, Joab. I mean, you're now going to be dividing your army up into two forces. You're going to be now not just one army that's outnumbered, but two armies that are outnumbered. And, and some would even say it's a bit arrogant because he makes no arrangement for the possibility of defeat. He basically says, if you're doing bad, I'll come help you. If we're doing bad, you come help me and we'll whoop them. But his next words show that he says to his brother and, and probably to the rest of the troops, it reveals his mindset, why he, he makes this plan. Look at verse 12. He says, 
be of good courage, and let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God. The phrase, be of good courage, means men, you need to have the resolve to accomplish this task. This is the task that I've appointed to you. These are our battle lines that we're going to do. This is our plan. And you need to have the resolve to carry it out. In other words, you need to, you know, uh, what is it? Put your courage to the sticking post is the phrase, you know? You need, you need, you need to get, summon your courage and be resolved that we're going to fight and we're going to win. And then he says, let us play the men, which is actually a play on the same word for courage here, or to be strong. It's a play on that word because it just means encourage yourself. Get your resolve together, get ready to go out and fight, and then encourage yourself for it. I love what David Guzik said. He said, courage and strength are not matters of feeling and circumstance. They are matters of choice. They are matters of choice. Some of the most courageous people I've ever known have been some of the people most terrified to do what they needed to do. You know, I'm not saying anything new. I'm not making anything up. I'm not deep. Courage is not the absence of fear. Bravery is not the absence of fear. It's doing what's necessary, doing the right thing, you know, going out to do what you need to do even when you're afraid. That's courage. It's normal to feel afraid. I'd be a little, I'm a little bit concerned about people who don't have any fear sometimes at all. <laughs> and he tells them, we are doing it not for plunder, not even for glory, but it's for our people. If we're going to win, we need to be committed to this plan because if we lose, there's a great cost. Because I guarantee you, if this is what they did to our royal officials, they're going to do worse to your, your wife and your kids and you know, everybody else back home. And not just for our people. I love what he says here too. He says, and for the cities of our God. Joab, again, he's not a spiritual guy. But you can see here, he's got a solid foundation. You know, he understands that the promised land and its cities belong to the Lord. He understands that. We're going to even see that in a little bit. He understands how how life is supposed to work. Just doesn't always act on it. But he understands the principles And you know, it brings up a good question for us. You know, do I recognize that all I have belongs to the Lord? Do I care for the things that God entrusts to me as if they're His? Or do I treat it like it's mine? You know, do I treat my finances, my stuff? You know, we, we tell our kids all the time. I, I, people always come to me for parenting advice, and I say, you know what, my advice, I'm way too strict. I don't mean that, but I mean, I'm just saying, you know, I, I, you, if you think you're going to come for sympathy for me, if you're, you know, you're a parent and, you know, you say, well, we're trying to be nice to our kids. I'm, I'm not nice to any of my kids. You know, if I see him jumping on a couch, that's bad. That's not your couch. That's the Lord's couch. You know, if, if I see them mistreating something that they were given, I tell them, I say, that's not okay. That's, that's not yours. That's the Lord's. You know, you don't get to treat that how you want. There are times, you know, we had one of the kids one time threw a controller because he got mad. That didn't end well. That's not your controller to throw just because you get mad. That's the Lord's controller, and now it's my controller too. You know? We, we, We have tried to teach our children from a very young age to respect the things that are in front of them because those are things that God gave to you. He doesn't owe you that. 
Do I recognize that all I have belongs to the Lord and do I care for it as if it's his? Now, before we move on to the rest of verse 12, what we see here is a great foundational truth in Scripture, and it's the concept of human responsibility. Notice what Joab did not say is, hey guys, battle belongs to the Lord and just, you know, take five. Take five, you know? Even the times when God told the people to do nothing, when he told Moses, he said, stand still. But he didn't just say, stand still and do whatever you want. He said, stand still and watch the salvation of your God. Look at what's going to happen because you need to see this. There is always human responsibility. I want to tell you about a famous missionary named William Carey. William Carey was a young cobbler in England during the late 1700s. He started studying his Bible, and he became convinced that the heart of God was to reach the lost. However, his church taught a very popular view back then. His church taught that the Great Commission was only for the disciples. It didn't apply to us. It was just for the, you know, the 12. Undaunted, Carey presented his thoughts from Scripture at a church meeting. The minister told Carey, and this is an exact quote, Sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, he will do it himself. Carrie and his wife eventually sailed to India, and because there were no missionary organizations back then, because the church didn't think that that was what we were all called to do, he took a job at an indigo factory and began passing out tracts and sharing his faith. William Carey eventually became one of the greatest missionaries in church history. At one point, when things were really hard, someone asked him and said, well, what keeps you going? You know, how how do you keep doing this? And he said this, I can plod, I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. Interesting. You know, it's not that Carey said, oh, I did it all. That's not his point. If you know anything about him and you read his writings and what he accomplished, he gave all the glory to God. He trusted in God for the strength, all those things. But when he was asked, you know, how do you, how do you keep doing this? He said, well, what can I do? I can plod through this difficult thing, you know? Is the going tough? You know, is it sticky and hard and it seems like I'm sinking at times? Yeah, but I can keep putting one foot in front of the other. I can persevere. Through anything, if I have a definite purpose, I have a goal in mind, I I can just keep walking. To this, he says, that's how I've accomplished what I did. Kerry did what Joab told his men to do here. Be of a strong courage. Play the part of a man. Fulfill your responsibility. We have a part to play. And in that part, God requires us, commands us to give it our all. Being a Christian doesn't mean doing nothing because God is sovereign. Being lazy in our service to God because we are so very small and so very weak is not the right response to our weakness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it tells us very clearly, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It doesn't say it's an option. Paul says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers, the servants of Christ, and stewards of the mystery of God. You know, if you have a server, 
And, 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 you know, his mindset is, you know, at a restaurant and, and you're sitting there and you're waiting to, you know, give your order or waiting for your food. And, and you know, if the, if the sermon came up to you and said, listen, my boss is a really good boss. And because he's a really awesome boss and he can do anything and he makes the best dishes and he can, he can lead better than anybody else. And he's, he's just got all the resources at his disposal. Because of that, you probably won't see me very much tonight. Would you be happy with that? No. We're servants in the house of the Lord. We have responsibilities that He's given to us. And so, moreover, Paul says, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful, trustworthy, reliable, dependable. I don't consider someone to be dependable. I, I give this lecture to all of my kids at some point in time, mostly the boys. And I say, listen, if, if you want to, to find success in life, you're going to have to be someone others can trust. You're going to have to cultivate an attitude of hard work, of dependability, and trustworthiness. You know, in life, I'm, I'm 47 years old, so, you know, I, I've had some experience. I realize there are some of you older had a lot more experience than I do. But in the experience I have had, which is considerable, I have found it is way better to go with the person that I can count on than the person that is really good at something. That's just the lesson I've learned. You know, there are times, I remember one of my bosses told me, we, we had this, like, like, you know, all these pre-interviews and stuff that we'd go through, and so they're going through all these stages of interviews, and, and I'm like, man, this guy is a, like, a, like a knockout. Like, I mean, you know, this is awesome. You know, I mean, he's just incredible. And I remember my boss looked at me, and he goes, yeah, and why is he here and not somewhere else? Why does he have all these, he can't seem to hold down a job longer than a year? Okay, found out later, hired him, and found out later, though, he, he had a dependability issue, had a, a substance abuse problem. And so, yeah, he interviewed great. He was incredible in, at the, 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 as far as the job requirements, you know, for, for meeting the skill set that was necessary for the position. But he, he, he would just have days, he wouldn't even show up. No call, nothing. He just wouldn't be there. And so I've learned, you know, I'll, t- I'll take the person who's plotting faithfully over the person who's, man, they're the latest thing since whatever, you know? And I think when we look at what the Scriptures have to say that God's looking for that as well. You know, when we sing that song, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe, I don't think that <laughs> laziness, you know, or just kind of eat the popcorn and say, well, God's got this, you know, is is the mentality of what we're saying when we say, all to him I owe. In Colossians 3.23, we read parts of this and other, in, before that in Colossians in our scripture, and where it talks about put off these things, put on these things, you know, you know, whatsoever you do, do it for the glory of God, you know? Well, you read down to Colossians 3.23, and it says, and whatsoever you do, do it with all your heart unto the Lord. All your heart. You know, I mean, you know, when I think of this speech that Joab's giving to the soldiers, that's kind of the meaning there, right? You know, you know, like he's not looking over, Bob, you know, I, Bob, I, you know, just, you know, kind of put your shield up every once in a while so, you know, Ted doesn't get hit, you know, you know, I mean, I mean, I know he's really good and, and God's got this, but just every once in a while, put your shield up, you know? No, he's looking at me. He's like, guys, we're doing this for our families. We're doing this for the cities of our God. Do this with your whole heart. <laughs> we got to be committed to this. We got a responsibility here. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells his young protege, this young pastor, 
He says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, there's an effort that we can put out that we would be ashamed of our efforts, right? Anybody ever done that for the Lord? I've, I've done that right here sometimes. You know, I come and I think, Lord, I, I could have been better prepared. I could have spent more time praying about this instead of just studying about it. You know, there's lots of times that I've looked back and I thought, Lord, I, I, I know I could have done better. You know, there are many times in our lives when we were tempted to quit something, quit our marriage, you know, or, you know, quit on our kids, you know, ministry, whatever, you know, life, you know, a relationship, and, and we just think, it's not working, or I keep messing up, I'll just, you know, give up. I'll tell you something my wife always told me in those moments when I wanted to give up when it concerned the ministry. She said this, she said, I said, well, can you tell me in total honesty that you've given it your best shot? And there's probably been four or five times when she's asked me that question. Then she knew I didn't need to answer the question to her because we both knew the answer to the question. No. Well, how about we don't give up until we can say we gave it our best shot? Right? Because then you can, you can finally say, well, maybe, Lord, we're fighting you instead of just maybe not giving it our all. Right? I don't ever want to be somebody that walks away from something or quits on something, gives up on a relationship because, and then later on, you know, the Lord's kind of like going, well, I, I could have done more if you'd just been willing to give it your all. First Corinthians 9.24, Paul uses heavy language when he says, do you not know that they which run in a race all run? but one receives the prize. Paul was not into participation trophies, by the way. And neither were they back then. He's bringing up a point, an illustration from life, and I'm, I am against participation trophies, but I'm not telling you you're bad if you're not. What Paul's saying is, is there's an illustration in life, okay? Everybody runs, and they all run to win because only one gets the prize, right? So, Paul says, run to win. Run to win. They do it for a, a, a laurel reef that's going to be, you know, crumbling into bits in, you know, a few months, a few weeks maybe even. We do it for an incorruptible crown. Run to win. Because what we do matters. I don't care what you, your theological system says. What we do matters. And it has an impact both on now and on eternity. To take any other approach is an unbiblical view of our responsibility. Now, am I being faithful? Am I being a faithful steward with the responsibilities that God has given to me? We all have different ones. I don't have the same responsibilities you do. But are you being faithful with the responsibilities that God has given to you? Are you giving it your best? If you're not, you cannot blame the Lord because things aren't going well. And that is frequently the reaction that I will see, you know, and well, God just, you know, he wasn't, he, he wouldn't come through in our marriage. And I, and I, you think in this situation, you go, well, 
I know you haven't given it your all. You know? Well, God, he just didn't come through in this, this I stepped out in faith and I did, went to do this ministry and, and I would ask the question, you know, well, can you say you're giving it your all? It's easy to blame the Lord rather than to look here and to say, Lord, what can I do better? Now, that's one foundational truth we find in Scripture. There is another foundational truth of Scripture, God's will. Because while we give our best, the outcome is always up to the Lord, right? And that's what Joab mentions to the men next. Back here in 2 Samuel chapter 10, he says, but guys, do your part. <laughs> and then he says this, and the Lord do that which seems him good, the thing that is pleasing in his eyes. Here's the truth. Even when we do our best, there are multiple factors that we cannot see, cannot plan for, and cannot act on, which means our best will never be good enough on its own. And sometimes our best may be moving in a direction that's not in line with what God wants to do, right? Even if our motive is good. So, while we give it our all, while we do our best, we have to commit all the other variables to the Lord. You know, we have to commit if the step I'm taking in faith, you know, to him, that if it's not the right step, then we say, Lord, guide me back to where I'm supposed to be. And I love that about the Lord, you know. The Lord doesn't, you know, doesn't, you know, smack us upside the head and say, why are you going that way, stupid? No, he says, hey, I'm not over there. I'm over here, right? I'm over here. You know, even in those moments where you see the disciples say some of the most absurd things in the whole world, like one of my absolute favorites, you know, they, they come into this Samaritan town, you know, and, and, and Jesus sends the disciples, hey, find a place for us to stay. They go inside and they don't say, we don't want anything to do with you because you're Jews. And so they come back out and say, Jesus, they say they're not going to take us in. Hey, uh, you want us to call down fire on heaven, burn them all up? That's the part, like, like if I'm Jesus, like where I'm like, I don't say, what spirit of man you, you know, Jesus, he's so nice. He's like, what are you thinking, you know? No, I'm not saying, what are you thinking? I'm like, you're fired. You don't get to be a disciple anymore, you know? You're not, a, you're not an apostle. You're, you're a D or an F apostle, you know? You have failed, all right? You clearly have not been listening for the last, you know, three years. You're, you're, you have failed. I'm starting over, all right? We'd, we, <laughs> I love what, uh, I think it was, uh, uh, now my brain just reached Jacksonville. Who was the pastor of the conference there? I don't remember. Anyway, the pastor from Reach Jacksonville, uh, he was preaching at our, our yearly pastor's conference, and he was bringing up this idea of lessons that we teach our kids, you know? Do, you know, do we go and run over, you know, the old lady who's, you know, you know, with the, you know, she's got a cane, and she's trying to pay for her groceries because you want to you wanna go get the bubble machine. Do we do that? No, no, we don't, you know? It's kind of like this with Jesus. Do we burn down people's, you know, burn down entire towns because they don't let us come in? No, no, we don't. No, we don't do that, Jesus. You're right. We don't do that. No, you know? I mean, that, but that's how Jesus deals with it, you know? Even in those moments where it's the most absurd thing, like, what solution should we come up with? Let's just burn it all down, kill everybody. Men, women, children, animals, don't, doesn't matter to me, you know? And Jesus, even in that moment, he teaches them, right? He teaches them. You don't even, you don't realize where that's coming from, you know? You don't understand where, where that idea has come from. You're totally off from where I'm at, you know? He always tries to 
course correct us even when we're, we're doing something bizarre because he loves us. So we need to have that mindset that says, Lord, hey, I think this is where you're leading me, and I'm going to give it my all and step out in faith. But Lord, if it's not you, then just redirect me so I can give it my all where I'm supposed to give it my all, right? And that's what he's saying here. The battle is the Lord's. We're going to give it our all, but the Lord do what's pleasing, the thing that is pleasing in his eyes. Lord, I'm giving my all, but I know my all is very weak. So please make up for my weakness with your unlimited wisdom and strength and your grace. There will be times in your Christian life that you will see a command of God but be very aware of your inability to make it happen. To that, the Lord says, obey me with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength, and trust me to take care of all the details. That's what Joab is presenting to his soldiers here. And it's what God presents to us all throughout Scripture. Listen, relying on your own strength to achieve the desired outcome of obedience, doing it your all that way is a fast track to failure. But looking to his strength and his direction as I lay down my life, give it my all to do what he says, that can't fail even if I'm not hearing him perfectly because he'll redirect that energy where it's supposed to be. Proverbs 3, 5, 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, that's an important thing. In all your ways, in all the paths you're going. In other words, it's not a standing still moment. Trusting the Lord with all your heart is not a standing still moment unless God is telling you to stand still. Unless the way that you're supposed to go is stand still. In all your ways, whatever road you're going down, he'll, he'll straighten it out. He'll, he will make it straight. You know, he's going to make it flat. He's going he's to show you where to go. If there's an obstacle here and it's because you're not supposed to be over there, then he'll redirect you where there's not the obstacle. He'll put your feet where they're supposed to be. Well, how does this turn out for Joab and the Israeli soldiers? Verse 13. Joab drew near and the people that were with him unto the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the children of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fled, then they fled also before Abishai and entered into the city. So Joab returned from the children of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. Uh, These guys had already been whooped by Israel once and so when the battle even just began to start going poorly for them, this was not the kind of fight they signed up for. They were supposed to either, you know, be the ones to hold the line while the Ammonites smashed in from the rear, or they were supposed to be the ones smashing the Israelites in the rear. They were not ready. They didn't, did not sign up for no matter how much money they were paid to, to you know, to, to die to the last man. And so they flee pretty early into the battle, which means a lot of wasted money for the Ammonites. They just run right back into their city, and, and the Bible tells us that uh, they decide to settle for holding out in a siege. But Joab doesn't lay siege to the city of Rabbah. He returns to Jerusalem because, as we see here, the problem is much bigger than just the Ammonites. Four other vassal states to the north are part of this rebellion, even if they're just mercenaries. And Joab has no intention of putting a second force at his back again. So before they can deal with the Ammonites, they need to deal with the Syrians. So verse 15, 
And when the Syrians saw that they were smitten, routed before Israel, they gathered themselves together. The word there, gathered, it means to make an alliance. So they made an alliance with one another. Instead of just sending, you know, few forces from each of them, they all banded together and made this alliance to all fight against David. And it says with Hadar Ezer as their head. Verse 16, and Hadar Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians that were beyond the river. Remember when we saw him couple weeks ago, he was trying to take ground land back from, you know, by the river. So apparently since he couldn't get that and David kept him from doing that, he went across the river and he conquered territory in Mesopotamia and he had troops there. And so he calls back everything. He calls back all the troops that were beyond the river. And so they came to the city of uh, Helam. Uh, Helam is actually not a city, I'm sorry. It's a region uh, that's uh, far to the east of the Sea of Galilee. It's on the highlands of Bashan. Um, really far away from Israel. It's a weird spot for David to, to fight this battle, but this is where they camp, and, and likely because they're going to invade Israel from the north uh, on the other side of Jordan, where Israel was more spread out. It also mentions here this guy Shobach. Uh, he was the captain of the army that went out uh, before King Hadarezer. He's mentioned here because of what will happen later on in the battle, verse 17. And when it was told David he gathered all Israel together. So now this time, David, uh, he doesn't just send Joab, David comes out. And then David doesn't just send the train troops, he brings everybody who can hold a weapon out to this one. This is going to be a big fight. And, uh, and he comes out personally to lead the troops. And so it says they, they passed over Jordan, so they crossed over the river and came to Helam, this region way to the east of Sea of Galilee. And the Syrians, they put their soldiers in the battle array against David right there, and they fought. The two armies fought. Verse 18, the Syrians fled before Israel, and David slew the men of 700 chariots. So these charioteers, he he killed 700 of them, of the Syrians, and 40,000 cavalrymen. And he also smote Shobak, the captain of their host, who died there. Now, it's possible that David's the one who killed all these. I mean, he's just killing people left and right. That's probably not not what's going on here. But it's worded this way because it is likely that David killed this guy Shobak himself, and that's why he's mentioned earlier. So, you know, David's the one who kills the enemy general. Uh, David, in this instance, he did not lead from the rear like before when he sent Joab out. He took on the hardest obstacle on the battlefield himself and won the day. And so, with this victory, the rebellion is put down. Verse 19, and when all the kings that were servants to Hadarezer saw that they were smitten before Israel, they made peace with Israel. They signed a treaty with Israel and uh, they served them. So they returned to their vassal state status, paying tribute and, you know, uh, pledging their loyalty to David. Verse 19, so the Syrians feared to help the children of Ammon anymore, which basically means, Ammon, you're on your own from now on. You, you've picked this fight with David, you're going to have to, you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to answer for your actions alone. Now, The reason it mentions this, that they didn't help the children of Ammon anymore, is because the story's not over. And the Bible doesn't put all this stuff here just so we can go, oh, cool, battles, you know? The Bible puts this chapter here so we can learn a little bit about what Joab said, a lesson from the heart, right? But it also puts it here because it's going to set the stage for a prideful moment in David's life. Because just as David didn't go out to fight the Ammonites the first time and just sent Joab, and it almost ended badly because they got pincered. David assumes the Ammonites by themselves, Joab can handle this, and he doesn't come again. 
which is why David's on a roof admiring a woman while she bathes, a place he should… The roof is fine. The people are, what's David doing up on his roof, peeping Tom, you know? You have to understand, that's just how they lived back then. The roof was the place you hung out. Like if you had like a porch, you know, where you hang out, read a book, whatever, that's the roof back then. That's how they did it. It's the coolest place in the house. It's where you hung out when you were just chilling. A lot of times, multiple people would hang out up there. And to be frank, um, just bathing and, and all sorts of other activities that we would consider incredibly private were nowhere near as private back then as they are today. So, the idea is, it's not so much where David is on a roof or where Bathsheba's bathing. The idea is, David should be over fighting the Ammonites. And so, in this prideful moment, it gives the opportunity for an enemy to attack David. And so, what we find here in this chapter, you know, this is one of those few moments where Joab is being more spiritual than David. There's only like three or four of them in the Bible, but they're all important. You see, Joab understands the battle belongs to the Lord, but he also gives his best and urges his men to do the same. David did not. David's not even present. And so my encouragement to us tonight, let's be those who stay humble. We don't take anything for granted. No, I can handle this on my own. And then let's hold nothing back. Let's commit everything, you know, in our being to say, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, you know, whether it's being a, a husband, a wife, dad, mom, you know, uh, you know, a Christian witness, you know, a faithful worker in our, in our, you know, in our job environment, you know, a faithful part of our community, faithfully serving the Lord, whatever it is God's called us to do with our responsibilities, let's be those who say, Lord, I'm all in, you know, I'm all in, I'm all in on my marriage, I'm all in on my, you know, my kids, I'm all in on, on this, this, you know, uh, you know, mission field you've given to me in my job environment, in my community, you know, I'm all in on, 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 you know, encouraging my brothers and sisters, you know, in, in the body of Christ. Let's be those who do that, and then let's commit everything else to the Lord, right? And say, Lord, there are things I don't know about, things I can't control, but Lord, I know I can give it my all. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, I know that we, I know at least I like things cut and dried, some, and sometimes they're just not. Sometimes even it seems like they are these two ideas of human responsibility and, Lord, the fact that you're just God, you're sovereign, Lord. Sometimes they seem to be in opposition, but, Lord, we recognize the Bible does not, does not communicate that way at all. It holds both truths equally. Lord, you are totally sovereign. You are, everything is according to your will in the sense, Lord, that, that you're in charge and that, you know, Lord, if you don't want it that way, then it's not going to go that way. But Lord, we also understand that you call us to obedience and, Lord, that our actions do matter. And so, Lord, that's the part that, that we can, can control in that sense. You're desiring to work in our hearts to conform us to your image and, and you had invited us to be partakers of the divine nature. You've invited us into this partnership. And you call us, Lord, to present our bodies as living sacrifices. You, you call us to be obedient, to put off the old man, put on the new man. These are things that we do do. And so, Lord, with, with our hearts tonight, we say, we commit it to you, Lord. We want to give you everything in regards to whatever it is that you've given us responsibility for. We want to be found faithful stewards of what you've entrusted to us. Lord, we are very weak, 
And so even as we're committing these things to you, we pray that you fill us with your spirit, that we might be able to do them. In Jesus' name, amen.